This is Behind the Curtain at L.A. Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lauritsen. On this edition of the podcast, I'm joined by L.A. Opera artist-in-residence Matthew O'Coin, a composer and conductor who will be leading L.A. Opera's run of Verdi's Rigoletto, May 12th through June 3rd at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. He was not a provocateur to the most extreme. He didn't want to lose his audience. He wasn't saying, screw you. So the course of his career is evolution, not revolution. He knows how far he can push the envelope. Also in our conversation, how Verdi improved as a composer with age, how he picked his battles carefully with the Italian censors, and how for Verdi, drama was king. Thought I would start actually with a quote from Verdi himself, and and he says about Rigoletto, the subject is grand, immense, and there is a character that is one of the greatest creations that the theater can boast of in any country and in all history. So was he right? Yeah, that's that's a pretty grand claim, obviously. (laughs) But I think he was right. Verdi also said that Rigoletto, who was originally called Triboulet in, in the Victor Hugo was worthy of Shakespeare, and for Verdi that was about as good as a compliment gets. We have to, I think, be aware that having a, a hunchback of, of one of the lowest sort of classes of society, a, a jester, you know, someone who's doing something that's immoral, that's often cruel, he's really an anti-hero, that this is not normal for the time, and for Verdi to recognize the pathos in this figure and the humanity shows us a lot about Verdi's own qualities, I think, as an artist and and as a human being, to say, oh, this guy has suffered so much. He's so in need of love. He's got, he's so complicated. Um, to say that that is his ideal operatic hero was a kind of a big step. It's kind of, there's a hint of it in his Lady Macbeth you know, Verdi famously said of his of his Lady Macbeth that it shouldn't be someone with a beautiful voice, and that he, you know, she she begins the opera by kind of speaking, rasping this letter, you know, and, and so Verdi was already breaking the mold of of the bel canto heroes and heroines, you know, who, as the term bel canto would suggest, they, their job is to be beautiful, and everything is this celebration, this glorious celebration of the of the beauty of the human voice. Verdi wanted to take those principles and put them to new ends, use them to new ends. And and Rigoletto is, I think, the first major success. Mm-hmm. I mean, he broke a lot of rules and ground, I guess you could say, with, with this piece specifically and with the construction of it and with yes. all of the musical elements. Uh, maybe we should, we should go there next. In the tradition Verdi was born into, and, and other traditions in Europe, um, not a lot happens in an aria. In an opera, <laughs> I'm sure this is not a surprise to to many listeners who who know and love of opera. But the aria, which is you know a hit single, it's, it's the showpiece for an individual singer. Um, these are often highlights of of individual operas, but they're not the locus of dramatic action. Uh, generally, uh, the action happens 
uh, in between an aria in a recitative or in a kind of introductory number and then uh, the singer sort of presses pause on the action and says here's how I'm feeling about it for six minutes and Rigoletto's a central aria breaks that mold completely and it comes at a moment when Rigoletto's daughter has been kidnapped and he doesn't know this but but she's been raped and Rigoletto goes to work. He's in his court jester outfit, and his colleagues at the court are the people who've kidnapped his daughter. He knows this, uh, and he explodes at them. He tries to keep his composure, but he, he loses it. And what is extraordinary is that Rigoletto tries every tactic to get his daughter back. They're, they're, they're being completely cold and unfeeling. So at first he rages at them, and he kind of beats his fists against them. And then he says, Oh God, this isn't working. I need to try a gentler attack. So he sort of pleads and he wheedles and he cajoles the one of the courtiers who he thinks is maybe most sympathetic. And that doesn't work either, so he just breaks down and sobs. And what's extraordinary is that Verdi actually enacts that in the music. He starts in this place of rage, and of course the rage aria, that was normal. The rage aria, we've all seen rage arias. But to stop in the middle of an aria and say, crap, this isn't working. <laughs> I need to try something different. And then for Verdi to musically try something different. And then for it to happen a third time, oh, this, is, this also isn't working. And then he just kind of melts. a much more complex and much more dynamic form for an aria and i think for the audience it's it's hugely compelling what was it for audiences in 1851 um then was it the way we sort of view maybe an experimental filmmaker today who is shifting ways to tell stories and we don't have a typical structure and and you know all of a sudden you know what's this guy doing and we're sitting there in the theater like and then we get done and we don't quite know what what we've seen and how that story has has been told was it you think it was probably um something like that yeah Verdi was very canny he was very smart he sort of said this kind of scandalous thing about you know the box office receipts being the only true measure of artistic quality so he was he wasn't uh he he was not a provocateur to the most extreme. He didn't want to lose his audience. He wasn't saying, screw you, you know. So the course of his career is evolution, not revolution. He knows how far he can push the envelope without losing the audience. And, you know, Rigoletto is a, it's a thunderbolt. It's a, it's a new and more dynamic form. But he didn't throw his lineage out the window. You know, there are 
there's like half a dozen unforgettable arias. Uh, there's memorable choral writing. There's the kind of punchy, dark-hued orchestral coloring that he'd already been known for. So I would say that it, it felt fresh, but it was it's part of a, a long trajectory. Mm-hmm. That's one of my favorite things about Verdi, actually, is that he's one of the only artists in any genre that I can think of who just gets better and better until he's in his 80s. You know, it's he... There, he you know, those early operas, I love them, but they are crude. They are, you know, he's he's painting with a hammer. <laughs> you know, he, it's a sledgehammer. And he just gets more and more refined and more and more sophisticated and more daring. You know, some composers get stodgy as they get older. Verdi just kept pushing. That's really interesting, though, about the idea of um, of an evolution, not a revolution, but also a revolution eventually. Mm-hmm. Like... So taking just enough risks, but also, you know, respecting and wanting the audience to to come along with you. Um, And I'm thinking of like artists today, we, you know, we see, or maybe not today, but maybe, you know, let's go 20, 30, 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. It's almost a contempt for the audience and almost like, well, if this is super popular, then there's obviously something wrong with it. Like, Mm -hmm. but Verdi, you know, here is a composer whose art has lasted for hundreds of years now um and well that's not quite accurate (laughs) but you know uh many many decades um and you know he is someone who said let's bring the audience along on this eventual revolution i think i just coined a band name (laughs) eventual revolution um (laughs) i think you have to look at the the milieu that verdi was writing for which is not just the Italian artistic scene at a moment when opera was their Beyonce. I mean, it was really the the main event in popular terms. But also the fact that he was writing more or less exclusively for the theater as opposed to writing instrumental music. You know, Beethoven sort of managed to have it both ways, I think, in, in kind of saying, I don't care about my listeners, and yet he was still worshipped. And I think actually his deafness had something to do with that that he was he was you know really in a private world, uh, and so he was really not thinking uh, quite in as, as practical terms. Verdi was writing exclusively evening length pieces in a cutthroat scene that just churned out you know opera after opera after opera. So in a way, I think he had to be a populist to survive. It's curious. I I don't quite think in, in, in those terms personally, because I'm also a composer. And of course, I, I'm not trying to make people dislike the music. <laughs> I'm, I'm really grateful when people say that they uh, love it. But I think the difference is that in our world, a certain kind of commercial music just feels so unappealing to me. Just the rules. Uh, if the rule is it can only be three and a half minutes long and it has to be slickly produced in this or that way, oh my God, I'm just so not interested. (laughs) I'm not interested. In Verdi's time, the popular art form was a really exciting canvas to paint on. You know, writing these operas with with fantastically gifted uh, singers and you have an evening to yourself, you know, I I can see why Verdi had the mindset he did. Yeah, and I guess that's why I think um, when I think about parallels from, from then to now, um, with opera, I, you know, I have to keep going to movies um, as a comparison, and and not to music for for the reasons that 
that you say because it just doesn't translate. You know that he's writing you know two and a half hour pieces, and you know the pop song is three and a half minutes. So, but you know, thinking about the idea of everything being in service of the drama, like that's to me like Verdi comes along and he says. All of the stuff that came before, like let's keep the good bits, mm-hmm. and then let's really make a piece that is dramatic, mm-hmm. first and foremost. And let's let's you know if we want some sopranos to go crazy up and down and you know dazzle people, that's fine. But it's about the drama. It's mm-hmm. about the drama, and I'm in charge. And singers, directors, orchestra, conductor, you are in service of this dramatic thing that I've created. There's an economy. In Verdi, he just he the mature Verdi never makes a false move uh, in dramatic terms, and and it's cool to watch that sort of fall away. Like, yes. um, you know, you can start to see it in Rigoletto. You see it, you see it in Macbeth with their stuff that could be trimmed, and then you get to mm-hmm. Otello, and it's like, oh yeah, okay, got it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm not, you know, I'm not knocking. Bellini or, or Donizetti, I, I, I just think they were after uh, a slightly different artistic goal. You know, the vocal writing is really sublime in in the best of their operas, but you can sort of, you can relax into it. You can just sort of, and Verdi doesn't let you relax. Um, Rigoletto is taut and tight, and, you know, it, it, even the most beautiful lyrical moments, like Gilda's aria, Caronome, it's a trick. It's so beautiful, and and uh, and of course the audience is invited to luxuriate in it. But over the course of the aria, the guys who are going to kidnap her are arriving, and they begin singing over the end of it. It's it's an amazing effect that just as she's winding down, Verdi begins these these. Tr- I'm getting chills thinking about it. He starts these tremolo strings, and and the atmosphere changes into this kind of fuzzy. You can tell that she is relaxing into her own kind of daydream and you know cinematically you know she goes into soft focus and what we see in the foreground instead are you know is this band of masked abductors So everything is in service of the drama. I think you're totally right. Mm-hmm. So he had problems um, getting this thing off the ground, yeah. um, and he had fights with censors. Um, he, uh, as I understand it, he wanted it to all more closely mirror actual real life situations or people, mm-hmm. and be a, a more direct social commentary. Um, and the censors are like, uh, "No, you can't do that." Um, one said, "This is a." Repugnant example of immorality and obscene triviality. Um. <laughs> it's funny the concessions that Verdi was and was not willing to make because he wanted to go through like he wanted to go through bit by bit by bit, right? And and yep. argue each point. And when Verdi really cared about a subject, he would fight tooth and nail. And this is one that he really cared about. But the play that it's based on, Victor Hugo's play. 
is called Le Roi s'amuse, the, the king amuses himself. And in Verdi's opera, it's a duke, because the censors wouldn't allow a king to be shown, you know, as a as a completely immoral psychopath. And and one thing that... and Oh, there's another moment in the play uh, when it's implied that the duke um, rapes Childa, but we it's all, it's all off stage. And there is a scene in the play where we, we actually see the duke approaching Gilda, sort of laughing, you know, locking the room from the inside and holding up the keys and then, you know, blackout. And that was considered a little bit too explicit mm -hmm. for the time. So those concessions, you know, Duke rather than King, okay, we'll cut the explicit rape scene. Verdi was willing to make those concessions, but he was not willing to change the, the essence of who the characters are. Or, you know, I'm sure he didn't, he would have said that the idea that this piece is trivial, he, that has no merit. That, that, that criticism has no merit because it's founded on the idea that someone of the lower classes or a jester can't be a tragic hero. And Verdi knew better. You know, in later operas, too, this is, this is kind of relevant to our latter-day practice of um, doing stagings of operas in different settings. Mm. It always kind of makes me laugh when traditionalists say, no, it must, you know, it must be in the original set. Verdi didn't care. He was perfectly willing <laughs> to change the century, the setting. You know, he works at the kind of, he works at the Freudian or Jungian level archetypes, you know, deep what's behind the mask and what the mask is to cover up that particular archetype. And he, he knew that those things pop up in every culture, in every society, and that they they completely transcend national borders. I mean, my favorite example of this is Unballo in Mascara, which he wanted to make it about the the assassination of a Swedish king. And they, the censor said that it had to be transplanted to somewhere really obscure. And so they picked Boston. <laughs> they picked colonial pre-America Boston. And of course, there's there's no king. There's no court. So it, 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 it absolutely makes no sense. <laughs> but for Verdi, that's not a debilitating concession because he can still he can keep the characters essentially who they are. Mm -hmm. Is there any sort of social commentary in the musical writing itself? So oh. um like challenging power structures by giving his most conservative or traditional musical material like to the duke for example. Um or is there anything like that going on here? That's a really uh interesting idea. I, I would agree that the most kind of formally cookie-cutter music is given to the Duke. You know, La Donne Mobile and his, his arias are kind of they're these great little tunes that you can whistle in the street. Um, but I think, for me, that has less to do with the Duke's royal blood and more to do with his his libertine personality. That that uh, the Duke doesn't get as complicated music because he's he's just a simpler guy. Mm -hmm. He's he's just interested in in sex and money and, and 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 having a good time. And so maybe that in itself is a commentary on it would be you know more conventional for the king to be the the complicated, suffering noble one. So yes, I, I suppose in a roundabout way, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> From a composer's standpoint, how do you approach this kind of music, especially? I don't like using words like masterpieces or whatever, but, yeah. you know, whatever, for for our purposes, you know, here is a, a piece that gets performed a bunch. It's in the public consciousness. It is um, one of the opera hits. It's in the canon. We can fight about that whole concept, too. But, yep. you know, uh, from a composer's standpoint who's writing music today in 2018, um, how do you look at 
a piece like this that has lasted since 1851? I think the the big difference between being a, a composer performer and being a performer performer, someone trained without without much composition training, is that composers tend to look behind the note to imagine what prompted it. Hmm. I think there is a big risk if your training is only in the classical tradition and, and if you're taught from the age of you know three that these are masterpieces and they're eternal and they're written by people who are so much greater than you will ever be, which is kind of the implication, then I think the risk is that actually you take the piece as a given. You sort of take it like you know, the word of God on these tablets and it was always there and it's it's as given as a as a mountain. And composers, I think, tend to look at a piece as something that's alive. And every moment in the piece is the result of a decision. And that for me is really exciting. Um, that every single moment someone had to go, what's, what's going to happen next? And there's always the risk of falling on your face. So not to take it as a given and to sort of think on your feet. I've realized in studying Rigoletto for this production, you really don't need to reinvent the wheel with this piece. <laughs> Actually, you know, a lot of bel canto operas, you have to work a lot harder to bring it to life, especially if you're working with performers who aren't super comfortable with, 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 with that tradition. Rigoletto really plays itself. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. The, you know, just the choice at the beginning, uh, the first scene there's a banda, you know, an offstage band, uh, which is a really hokey device in Italian music. You know, now we're at a party. There's a little banda music. But what Verdi does is he he overlays this really rapid-fire dialogue with it. And he keeps shifting back and forth between the banda and the full orchestra so that he, he sort of dislocates, uh, or rather he, he creates the sense of being at a party and for, if you're in this room, you hear this for a bit, and then you get disoriented, and you go onto the dance floor, and someone hands you a drink, and you get pulled into a side conversation in a corner, and um, he does all the work for you. It, it's, it's, it's really extraordinary. So I'm just trying to let it breathe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's interesting because, you know, reading um, someone like Ricardo Muti's comments about how almost every conductor does Verdi wrong, and I'm the only one who does it right— um, with all due respect to Ricardo Muti, like, no, like, no, you're not the only person who knows how to do Verdi. And, you know, like, how do you come to come to this piece or come to the composer Verdi knowing, you know, that there are super, super strong opinions from artists and from audience members and, and everything? Well, as a matter of fact, I actually studied with Muti. Um, I assisted him in, in, in Chicago and it was it was a hugely valuable experience. I do think that, that Muti very much comes from a monumentalizing tradition of, of taking the piece as a given in a certain way. And, and I think, I mean, I hugely respect his performances. They, they, they often feel like they're carved in marble. They're so impressive. But I saw him I, do Macbeth in concert yes. with Chicago Symphony, and it blew me away and it made me love Macbeth. Totally. Like, I mean, that's one of Muti's greatest gifts is that he can take, he, you know, he can take Rossini ballet music and make it sound like it's the most <laughs> sublime thing you've ever heard. It's 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 magical. And he's spotlighting Carabini next season, I think. Yep. And I'm like, what? Car- who? Well, what? that's I a mean- favorite trick. <laughs> uh, I think he learned that from Herbert von Karajan to, to pick a so-called lesser composer. Yeah. 
and to sort of say, well, it would be great because I'm doing it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I say this, it, it's really impressive because he, he can pull it off. Yeah. But it, yeah. he's done that with, with a lot of uh, early 20th century Italian composers that, that people mm-hmm. very rarely... He studied with Nino Rota, who wrote the Godfather music, right. in, interestingly. Right. Anyway, what, what is he doing with this idea that, like, I'm the only one who can do this? What, like, what's he, what's he getting at? Well, this is the difference between his generation and mine. I, I, part of the reason I have a lot of respect for him is that he, in certain ways, raised the standard of orchestral playing in certain Italian theaters where it wasn't always up to snuff. I mean, I think Italian opera houses have always done a great job with their core rep, but you wouldn't necessarily want to hear them play a Mahler symphony. And, you know, Muti, there weren't that many Italian conductors before him who really, I mean, to become music director of Philadelphia and then Chicago and Philharmonia in London, and to bring some of that sensitivity and sophistication that you get from doing other symphonic rep and to bring it back into Italian opera and to not treat it like, hey, it's Rigoletto, we all know how it goes, let's just... (laughs) (laughs) To really treat it seriously, I have a lot of respect for that. But the reality is I was born in 1990 and I have a very different perspective and I, you know, I'm not born into uh, a world where it's like uh, nobody's playing this music well, no one's playing... The or the orchestra sound bad. That's not true. The orchestra, the orchestral level is 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 extremely high, um, in 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 this country, and what I hope I bring to it actually is kind of a freshness and vividness of perspective that is a little bit like the period instrument movement in what that movement did to Mozart and and Beethoven. Mm. It wasn't composers largely, and I'm and I'm not advocating playing Verdi on the instruments that, you know, were used at the premiere. But I think that what conductors like John Elliott Gardner and all those those early period instrument orchestras, they just looked at, at, at the classical and Baroque rep with such fresh eyes and, and, and kind of gave it a good shake and inspired a, a new generation of performers. Who knows? Maybe, maybe I have a kind of different perspective on, on these pieces. Matthew O'Coin is L.A. Opera's artist-in-residence. He'll be conducting L.A. Opera's performances of Verdi's Rigoletto May 12 through June 3 at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. There are two casts for this production. One features Juan Jesus Rodriguez as Rigoletto, Lisette Oropesa as Gilda, and Arturo Chacon Cruz as the Duke of Mantua. The other features Ambrosio Maestri as Rigoletto, Adela Zaharia as Gilda, and Michael Fabiano as the Duke of Mantua. Mark Lamos is the director, and I'll be speaking with him on a future podcast. For more information, visit laopera.org. This is Behind the Curtain at LA Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lawrence. Enjoy.
enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.